I'm in North Sydney now, looking out at uh, the Sydney Opera House, across the Sydney Harbour, and I subscribe to Apple News Plus, and a uh, good article here in Vox is, is the right winning the comedy wars, so the top rating late night show is Greg Gutfeld on Fox News, right? It's like higher rating than all the network offerings. And I, I think that's for, for good reason. Like, uh, Gutfeld's good, man. He's really funny. And so what I most want from a comedy show or from comedy or a joke is to get a new insight into life. Like some you know, new revelation of reality. Like, I often look at my own behavior or my own perspective or my own opinions go like 40. That's absolutely absurd. And sometimes, you know, I don't know how bloody stupid I am until I get some new perspective on life. So I want good comedy like good art gives you a more profound understanding of life. So here's... Uh, Exposed to Box. the storylines the rest of the country is making jokes about, and vice versa. For humor to be funny, it needs to be somehow based in reality. Yes. Humor exaggerates, and you want to emphasize what is grotesque, but it has to be based on something accurate, says Prados Torreira. Right. So, unless the joke is revealing life, unless the art is, you know, revealing life, I, I just don't see the benefit to it. If your joke is about Hillary Clinton eating babies, that's untrue, so it's not going to be funny. The connection to reality is getting more tenuous for conservative people. One way the... Well, connection to reality becomes more tenuous the, the more you live in a bubble. And I think that's just as true for the right as the left. Conservative and liberal worldviews mirror each other, though, is that each side likes to position themselves as an underdog, mocking the... Each side has reasons to position itself as an underdog. Right, what you're talking about here is a sense of victimization. And every individual, every group, can easily manufacture narratives about why it is the underdog. As if elites on the other side. Both left and right can claim positions of victimhood and aggrievement that give them plausible claims to punching up, says Nick Marks, a media scholar and the co-author of That's Not Funny. How the right makes comedy work for them. We've got lots and lots of great comedy from non-white folks and marginalized folks. So when did this whole movement uh, take over where you're not allowed to punch down? Right? Like, why can't you ever punch down? So sometimes people who are below you in status or power, like, deserve a joke. And we are all improved by accurate criticism, and comedy only works if it is accurate. Like, if you're saying something completely divorced from reality, there's no resonance to it, right? You're not gonna laugh, it's not gonna go viral, right? Comedy and art you know, only work if you're revealing something true. And there are lots of true things about people who are below you, as well as above you in social status. Punching up at white hetero patriarchal systems of power, right? But all you have White, what was that, white, hetero, patriarchal systems of power? Well, there are plenty of systems of power that are non-white, non-patriarchal, and non-hetero. Right? It's not like power just resides with the, with the, the, the white, patriarchal, heteros. 
do is talk to a right-leaning person about their love of Gutfeld, and they'll say, well, no, we on the right are the victims because Joe Biden is president. So having a sense of victimhood is not inherently bad, right? So having a mild sense of victimhood gives you group cohesion. It gives you, like, purpose. It connects you to other people. It gives you a little bit of energy and strength, a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. But at a certain level of victimhood, it becomes dysfunctional, maladaptive. So I'd say, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe a sense of victimhood at, like, 2. It's probably generally adaptive. And a sense of victimhood, say, 5 and above, is almost always maladaptive, unless you're living in a state of war. Because my kid is coming home wanting me to use their pronouns. Because I'm constantly inundated with left-wing ideas. More and more people I know have uh, kids who, who are going trans. And that just must be a real shock to the system. Like, even in, like, in, in Judaism, not so much Orthodox Judaism, but in Reform and Conservative Judaism, it's increasingly common. According to this theory, left-wing and right-wing comics are basically telling the same kinds of jokes, but they're doing so from within two different realities. That explains at least some of the disconnect between the two styles. There's another theory that's a little more controversial. Dana Gale Young, a communication scholar and the author of Irony and Outrage. Yeah, I think this is important. It's not so much that... Uh the left and the right see the world differently, but the left and the right experience the world differently, right? We have different, you know, biological predispositions. So people on the right are much more reactive to threat, threat of contagion, threat of disorder. Uh, people on the left are much more reactive to the threat of ignorance and bigotry. Like people who keep a clean room much more likely to be conservative. People who are conservative much more likely to prefer stories that have a definitive ending. Like people on the left are much more okay with open-ended endings. So people on the left tend to be more open to new experiences. psychologies of the people who hold the two ideologies. According to Young, liberals like jokes based in irony and misdirection that end up in a surprise punchline, while conservatives like jokes based on exaggeration and grotesqueries that say what they mean from the beginning and then escalate. Okay, so I think what she's comparing here are higher IQ liberals with lower IQ conservatives. So the more intelligent the person, the higher IQ the person, the more they're going to prefer sophisticated, intelligent humor. The general structure of a political, liberal, late-night joke tends to use incongruity, says Young. You as the audience are asked to make a series of incongruous ideas fit together. Doing the work to make those two parts fit together is what makes the joke funny. By way of illustration, Young points to a groaner that's made its way around liberal internet spheres a few times. Why are Trump's ties so long? Because they go all the way to Russia. To get the joke, you have to know that Trump has lots of connections to Russia that are likely deeply corrupt. So I begin the morning early, 6 a.m. So right now, 
It's 11.17 a.m. on Wednesday morning here in Sydney, Australia, but I began the morning 6 a.m. at Darling Harbour near the Sydney Harbour Bridge, watching on a big screen with a couple hundred other Aussies, Argentina, handily take care of Croatia, 3 to nil. Since then, I've walked over the Sydney Harbour Bridge to North Sydney, listening to Apple News Plus, audio stories from largely Fox Magazine and the New Yorker. And then you have to apply that knowledge to the pun. To make sense of it, that's cognitively taxing, says Young. It takes a lot of resources to do that. And that kind of humor is tailor-made for someone who has a high tolerance for ambiguity, a high need for cognition, and really likes riddle-solving. In contrast, Young argues that conservative humor, including Gutfeld's... Look, it's a lot easier to have a high tolerance for ambiguity when you control the high ground in culture, right? So, because the liberal left controls largely the cultural means of production, they dominate almost all our institutions, then it's a lot easier to have a high tolerance for ambiguity, you know, as opposed to, you know, if you're on the right and you feel like all your society's institutions are aligned against you. Is often built on the model of a yo mama joke. You state a premise once, and then you keep repeating it in increasingly absurd ways. It doesn't comport with the incongruity framework that underlies most punchline-oriented humor, Young says. What they're doing is exaggeration-based humor. It's insult humor. It doesn't take a lot of unpacking, but for that audience, it scratches an itch. That's an unoriginal metaphor, Captain Jowls, Gutfeld said in one monologue addressed to CNN's Brian Stelter, after Stelter opined that former Fox News anchor Chris Wallace stood out like a sore thumb at an increasingly radicalized Fox News. Stelter has been public with his weight loss journey in the past. It's been used more times than your waffle iron continued Gutfeld, who previously complained that his late-night comedy peers never offended anyone. You should have said, Chris Wallace sticks out like my belly when I undo my bathrobe after dinner. Now, I enjoy Greg Gutfeld. I, I really enjoyed his show, Red Eye. But yeah, I do think he is excessively mean. Like, I, I don't think this type of routine funny. And Fox is radicalized? If Weight Watchers could radicalize you, Brian... By the time the monologue ended, Gutfeld had also called Stelter a fabricating fart pillow and a corpulent crumb sucker. If this type of humiliation-based humor brings another conservative figure to mind, well, yes. And more on his effect later. Young's theory is that liberals like satire because they're less concerned with danger than conservatives are. Well... Satire is a very powerful tool for the less powerful to take on the more powerful. So, I mean, both the right and left can you know, wield satire to take on the powers that be. Liberals are less attuned to threat in their environment. They're not as stressed about whether or not they're going to be the victim of crime. Well, it depends where you live. It depends where you are in the social hierarchy. Like the, the richer you are, the less likely you are to be victimized by crime because you can afford to live in a better neighborhood. She says, this translates to a higher need for cognition. They are less worried about someone coming out of the shadows, which gives you the luxury of being able to sit around and think. 
yeah, it depends where you live, right? If you got the money to live somewhere safe, like uh, Sydney, right? Then you're not going to be so worried about people coming out of the shadows. So, generally speaking, I think highly educated and the high earners are increasingly voting for the Democratic Party and uh, they are much less likely than the average bloke to be a victim of crime. Liberals, in other words, have enough time on their hands to like jokes that make them work a little bit, in the same way they might like cultural products that make them work, like jazz or abstract art. In contrast, Young argues that conservatives are constantly monitoring the world for threats, and as a result, they're less patient with ambiguities and uncertainty. Yeah, when all the major institutions are dominated and controlled by the left, yeah, you're going to feel under much more threat. Conservatives like things that are more fully cooked, art that looks like what it's supposed to look like, songs with a straightforward breakdown, and straightforward jokes, she says. Young's theory, to be sure, has a certain resonance with such classic culture war fights as My Kid Could Draw That and Who Actually Likes Opera? If Obama was a sonnet, Trump is a limerick, Gutfeld mused shortly after Trump's 2017 inauguration. And really, which ones do you enjoy more? Young's critics, however, argue that her framework is just more liberal posturing. And that all she's really saying is that conservatives are too stupid and unsophisticated to understand satire. Still, this is not about sophistication or intelligence or political knowledge, Young says. Our survey research shows conservatives are high in political knowledge. You could just as well say liberals waste a lot of valuable time chewing their cud. They cannot make a decision to save their life. Part of the evidence Gutfeld and his cohort cite for the idea that liberals aren't funny is the idea that liberals have become prim. At the center of his comedy is the sense that the left satirists have become censorious scolds. Regardless. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the sense that I've developed over the past 30 years. So whether that idea is true or not, plenty of people agree with Gutfeld, and that's a big cultural change. Moral disapproval over stand-up comedy used to be associated with the right. According to Lauren Levine, a communications PhD student who wrote her thesis on the ways comics navigate concerns about political correctness, that association has been shifting toward the left slowly over the past 60 years. Throughout the 50s and 60s, political correctness is going to be used more so by the right, and it's going to be thought of as something used to police profanity, obscenity, vulgarity, says Levine. This is when Lenny Bruce is arrested, because at the time, we have obscenity laws. Levine argues that the left began to get concerned about political correctness starting in the 1970s, when continental philosophers like Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida became all the rage in academia. So in the 1950s and 60s, our institutions weren't as dominated by the, the left. And so people who were arresting, you know, Lenny Bruce didn't tend to be on the left. So now that power has shifted to the left in almost all our major institutions, you know, the left is able to enact much more freely, you know, those parts of its prim, proper PC agenda that are not popular. When you have the power, you can just do things, even if it's not popular. So the lack of power in our major institutions made the liberal left more responsible. People were really interested in the relationship between language and power, she says. 
Then, in the 1980s, as the Federal Communications Commission's Fairness Doctrine disappeared and the political extremes began their long retreat towards separate media silos, Levine says that progressive activist groups began to make political correctness part of their arguments against figures like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. They were using PC as a strategy, she says. This new rhetorical move emerged into an increasingly polarized media landscape. Well, when conservatives started to dominate talk radio, right, the left started using PC to try to remove their advertisers, to try to you know, revoke their commercial licenses because they couldn't win on the even playing field of talk radio. United a new fight. Young, going back to psychology, argues that a mounting sense of danger motivates the left's political critiques of comedy. Conservatives, per her framework, don't want to bother with satire because they're too busy scanning the landscape for threats. And she posits that liberals get into the same state of mind when they're facing jokes about disenfranchised groups. There are some liberals unwilling to enter the state of play when it comes to human rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, she says. My sense is there is an unwillingness to entertain those ideas because there is a real perceived threat. Threat salience is always going to interrupt humor processing and appreciation. To be clear, it's pretty reasonable to feel worried about violence after you hear bigotry-inflected jokes that involve racial slurs or... No, it isn't, right? Yeah, I'm sure that some people who commit violence have said bigoted things, but the correlation between saying bigoted things and doing you know, violent crime is quite low. And America has a massive violent crime problem, but it's not primarily committed by uh, white people who say bigoted jokes. Harmful stereotypes. Studies consistently show clear links between hate speech toward marginalized groups and hate crimes against... Yeah, consistent links, but how strong? Compared to the massive wave of violence that's been set off by the Black Lives Matter movement, like all the bigoted jokes in the world right, wouldn't, wouldn't amount to 1% of the violence unleashed by BLM. Them. And it makes sense that people who either belong to or care about protecting these groups might not feel playful when it comes to joking about them hatefully. Levine interviewed working comics for her field work, and she found that the concern over a woke mob censoring the jokes of hapless stand-ups is largely overblown. Most of the people I interviewed felt that the people at live shows are not really the people getting outraged. The outrage tends to come from voices on the fringe getting amplified for a catchy headline. And I also noticed that people who do podcasts right, don't tend to get called out and cancelled. Right? It's mainly people who write things who you know, attract the ire of the liberal mob. He said... I've started thinking about the idea of political correctness as a moral panic over overregulated and underregulated speech. The idea that audiences can't take a joke is an amplified idea from the media. Levine's research, though, shows that the idea of a humorless liberal ruining everyone's comedy fun remains firmly ensconced among working comics. Both sides have their own idea of PC, she says. The right continues to push back against ideas they think of as vulgar or obscene, while the left continues to push back against ideas they think of as anti-progressive. 
You might remember that take from Trump's infamous Access Hollywood tape. The right thought that the problem was the word pussy, and the left thought that the problem was the word grab. Uh, no. I think people on the left and the right both found it vulgar and disturbing. It's just that the right was able to put it in context that this is you know, locker room talk. Donald Trump wasn't talking about going around you know, doing this to random women on the street. He was talking about doing this to women who were already sexually attracted to him. And so he was just making the first move. can focus on the words, but you can focus on the context and the meaning of the words. And people on the left were focusing you know, on the horrible sounding words and uh, putting less emphasis on the context and the meaning of the words. Both sides have the things they like and they don't like, says Levine. But I think most people would say the left currently is louder in voicing their dislikes when it comes to comedy. And why is the left louder? because they control the high ground of culture. Trump was the alpha and journalist Billy Bush was listening. Yeah, it was two blokes you know, batting locker room talk back and forth. Right? The left is louder because they have more power. They can get away with it. Right? They're dominant in institutions. They occupy the high grounds of culture. So it's easier for them to be louder. That sense of the left's loudness is key to the rise of conservative comedy Gutfeld exemplifies. There might have been a period, particularly during the early 2000s, when right-wing media really struggled to brand itself as comic. That period is gone, says Matt Sinkovitz, a media scholar. And no, there was always abundant comedy on right-wing talk radio. Like Rush Limbaugh was frequently quite funny. And, uh, you know, a lot of other people in right-wing talk radio were quite funny. Now, on... Fox News, yeah, often they struggle to be funny. But right-wing talk radio has been funny from the beginning. Co-author with Nick Marks of That's Not Funny. Sinkovitz and Marks argue that part of the reason for the recent rise of conservative comedy is that liberal comedy in the traumatized post-Trump era is now seen as overly pious. For the last 20... Yeah, Rush Limbaugh had the hard rock intro and outros... Rush was very easy to talk to. He was a very accomplished you know, radio entertainer. Right? He was much stronger on entertainment than he was on political ideology. And so he was consistently you know, putting out product that compelled your attention and that, that made you laugh. Years, we have owned the cultural terrain of comedy and irony, arguably to good effect. The Trump era made liberals forget that. It made our comedians want to act like paternal figures who would pat us on the head, says Marx. The right has correctly seen that and said, oh, they're not doing comedy anymore. Well, that's what happens when you get too much power. Right? You see this with people who have some success in one field. They think it then entitles them to you know, branch out into other fields where they expect to have similar success. And so the left came to dominate the high grounds of culture. And so they stopped working as hard on their comedy and satire. We're the ones doing transgressive, edgy comedy now. Sinkovitz argues that this sense of edgy transgressiveness allows conservative comics to hitch their wagons to the legacy of figures like Lenny Bruce, who was arrested repeatedly for saying dirty words in his comedy routine. I've never found Lenny Bruce's routines particularly funny. 
So I know he's this comedy icon and this hero of the left. I just never got, you know, got a good laugh from him. I, I didn't feel like I understood life better you know, from listening to a Lenny Bruce routine. In the 1960s, before he was eventually convicted and sentenced to four months in a workhouse. Lenny Bruce is this key figure in the story of American comedy, and his story is liberal. He's got real important things to say, and part of his appeal is that he was willing to say them, and they shut him down, says Sinkovitz. Yeah, well, he could have said everything he wanted to say without using the uh, certain curse words. So I think limitations on curse words will usually provoke you to work harder with your comedy. So I think uh, that's usually a good thing. Now, conservative comics who say that they've been put in YouTube jail had their videos demonized because of their use of hate. Yeah, apparently Disney, ABC, Marvel are canceling a lot of their work shows. Same thing on Netflix. Yeah, work shows did tend to be very entertaining, compelling, or funny. Just like uh, other shows that, that put their political ideology first. And if it's meant to be entertaining, then you know, that's not going to be funny. That's not going to be entertaining. So I notice the mainstream media is castigating the White Lotus finale because you know, toxic masculinity wasn't sufficiently uh, castigated and didn't receive a, a bad end. And Michelle Goldberg says we, we need uh, TV entertainment shows that... Uh, fully take up the challenge of politics rather than trying to transcend it. <laughs> I think shows that try to transcend politics are generally a good thing. It's like a major difference between American and British TV shows is that in American TV shows, generally speaking, if a, a character does something bad like takes drugs or gauges in illicit sex, they have to be punished usually that very same episode, or if not, the next episode. Well, in a British show like Kids, right, they can you know, be doing drugs and bad behavior and they may not get punished that season. Company owners took a run on these work shows and work writers. Now they realize it's not turning a profit. Speech can cast themselves as modern day Lenny Bruce's. There's this idea that a real comedian gets put in prison for saying the things that the other people just can't take, says Sinkovitz. Meanwhile, it's clear that the faces of liberal satire are no longer the scrappy outsiders they were when The Daily Show first scored press credentials to the 2000 presidential election campaign. So Trevor Noah has uh, retired from The Daily Show. <laughs> I just don't recall anyone sharing anything or talking about Trevor Noah. Like Even conservatives would often laugh at Jon Stewart and share Jon Stewart clips. Uh, from what I've seen, like Trevor Noah is just a complete waste. Like the Daily Show just ceased to be relevant when he took over. Today, Stewart's disciples, among them not just Colbert, Noah, and Oliver, but also Samantha Bee, Steve Carell, and Jessica Williams, are the comedy mainstream. That transition, Marx and Sinkovitz say, has cost them some cool, especially with the Gen Zers who didn't grow up watching them. It's also created a space where right-wing comics can frame themselves as the new underdogs. Zoomers are not interested in recreating the Gen X comedy power structure, which is logical, says Sinkovitz. Look, we want new insights into life, right? That's what we want from comedy. We want to see life in a new way, a more profound way. We want to get closer to the truth. 
We want our horizons lifted. We want our blinders removed. That's what we want from comedy. If something was the height of fashion 20 years ago, that almost inversely makes it less likely to seem hip and cool at the moment. There's a rebelliousness in the way people think of this right-wing comedy, right? Even if it really is regressive and pointing back to old, dominant ideas, but it can be branded as being the opposite of Stephen Colbert crying about January 6th during his monologue, which is very much not cool to the teens. Part of this shift came not just with time, but specifically with the Trump administration. Both a viciously cruel and highly skilled insult comic, one of Trump's more bizarre political gifts was to be so blatantly corrupt and incompetent that he paradoxically rendered satire toothless. No, he made easy satire toothless. You can still do satire for Donald Trump, you just have to work a little harder. I'm trying to think, is there, is there an American politician who's consistently been funnier than Donald Trump? I'm not aware of who that person might be. The Daily Show could effectively mock George W. Bush because it was ripping away the veneer of compassionate conservatism from a lying and warmongering administration. But Trump never bothered to hide what he was, and Alec Baldwin's impression grew more tired every time he trotted it out. So by the end of Trump's term in office, liberal comedy had lost a considerable amount of potency, and conservative comedy had received a shot of adrenaline from one of its most adept practitioners. So I think America increasingly polarized during the Trump administration because the left was increasingly talking to itself. It became less sharp with the comedy. This displacement of cultural capital has created changing economic incentives for advertisers who want to chase the lucrative 18 to 34 year old male audience. In the 2000s, those young men were glued to The Daily Show. That's no longer the case. The young male audience is being pursued by conservative comedians because the liberal comedians we've grown so fond of have calcified and become institutionalized, says Sinkovitz. The space exists economically for figures like Joe Rogan to go after this young male audience that Comedy Central wooed before. Marx believes this economic takeover is the result of a... Have you ever had a belly laugh from Joe Rogan? Uh, I don't recall experiencing that. The Brit Coalition. I do believe there's an intentional use of comedy on the right between right-wing politicians, entertainers, and others to reach out to young men. He says, I do think they get together in their smoke-filled back rooms and say, how do we replenish the aging electorate with people who aren't going to buy my pillows anytime soon? Well, here's this Joe Rogan character. The strategy may or may not be deliberate, and it may or may not be effective. So who do you think are the funniest commentators on today's scene? I'm thinking Tucker Carlson, Greg Gutfeld. Dave Chappelle, who are the other leading comic analysts today? Rogan, whose politics are inconsistent to the point of incoherence, but who frequently platforms far-right figures in the name of entertainment and comedy, is most popular among young men. Gutfeld also consistently reaches a young audience. But young men aren't trending more conservative now than they used to. Instead, young women are overwhelmingly trending liberal, while young men... I think people just want a new perspective, right? People just want to see reality differently. 
right? We, we want the, the blinders removed from our own prejudices. Right? We want to get you know, new insights into how the world works. Isn't uh, Richard Spencer a comic? He needs to hit his local open mic night. Yeah, I think uh, Richard is pretty damn funny. So, hanging out here in North Sydney, listening to pretty good uh, New Yorker article on the CEO of Anti-Work. So, let me pull this up here. Members of Royvin's advisory board were following Ramaswamy's new career as a cultural critic, and some were distressed. In Berwick's view, Tucker Carlson and Fox News were toying with him. So this is New Yorker article, the CEO of Anti-Work Incorporated, by mocking corporate virtual signaling on climate change and racial justice, the biotech founder Vivek Ramaswamy is becoming a right-wing star. So there's some good stuff in here. Let me play the highlights. To write legislation, to pouring money into school board elections. He picked up his phone, as if to seek out a more interesting conversation. I just don't think that's the biggest problem. Shortly after Ramaswamy was born, his family commissioned his horoscope, which predicted that he was destined for greatness. Oh yeah. Anthony, Camille, Gavin McGinnis. Yeah, they're pretty funny. Nick Fuentes is funny. Yeah, Richard Spencer is funny. Uh, Mike Enoch is funny. Steve Saylor is hilarious. He would later say that his family bestowed on him, their firstborn, a sense of deep-seated superiority and an expectation that he would outperform the average mediocre Joes with whom he went to school. Gita told me that she and her husband known as VG, believed that Vivek and his younger brother, Shankar, as children of immigrants, would have to work harder to succeed than the children of American-born parents. There are a lot of things we didn't know, being from India, she said. In eighth grade, at a large and economically diverse public school, Vivek was roughed up and pushed down the stairs by a black student. An injured hip required surgery, and... Wow. So you're in eighth grade, you're pushed down the stairs and requiring surgery at, at a public school. Yeah, I would think that would probably affect your worldview and probably incentivize your parents to send you to private school. His parents decided to enroll him in a private preparatory school. When I first asked Ramaswamy if that incident influenced his views on race, he seemed not to have thought much about it. But some days afterward, he wondered aloud if the experience had precipitated his doubt that members of one underrepresented group had a unique claim on being discriminated against. All human beings can be on both the giving and receiving end of that. So if you simply account for IQ, then that one single factor explains earning, wealth, uh, success in the workplace, success in education, like that one single factor, like Jewish disproportionate influence, success, wealth, right, is simply accounted for overwhelmingly by, you know, high average levels of IQ. So this one single variable has massive predictive and explanatory powers. A strain of animus toward black Americans runs through much of Ramaswamy's public commentary. 
after a foundation that has been linked to Black Lives Matter was... Look, just because you're anti-Black Lives Matter and that kind of hysteria that has led to the murder of thousands of Black Americans, right? that doesn't make you anti-Black or give you animus against the Black community. Maybe you're just opposed to the destruction of your own society. Maybe you're just an anti-murder activist. Sounds like this guy has an animus towards murder, which in my books is a good thing. Discovered to have spent donations on high-end real estate, he started to quip that BLM should stand for big lavish mansions. In our conversations, he could be similarly antagonistic, as when he discussed how today's civil rights activists, a group he defined as comprising Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, and Ibram X. Kendi, had sold out to corporate America. He couldn't say exactly how Kendi had sold out, but he believed that Jackson, the Baptist minister and former presidential candidate, who is now in his 80s, had profiteered on his standing as a civil rights leader. So, yeah, if you have contempt for these race hustlers like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, it doesn't make you anti-black. Ramaswamy likened this to extortion, but later clarified that the extortion attempts he meant to criticize were racial equity audits conducted by the former attorneys general Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch and their law firms. Corporations such as Starbucks and Verizon, he said, felt that to avoid accusations of racism, they had to hire the firms, often at great expense, to assess their diversity policies. I definitely... Yeah, and uh, th these law firms then come back with with uh, responses that completely ignore the power of the explanatory variable of IQ. Uh, not all groups have the same gifts, so we should not expect all groups to succeed equally in all areas. Just look at the NFL, it's like 80% black. You know, the NBA, 80-90% black. I definitely find the idea of systemic racism revolting, Ramaswamy told me. He allowed that it had existed in the U.S. at moments in the past, offering the era of slavery as one example. But racism was atrophying, he said, so societal goods should not be unevenly distributed. So it's best just to avoid the playing field of, of racism, what's racist, what's not, right? Will Elon Musk mandate, mandate IQ tests for his employees? I, I don't think so. I think that's uh, illegal. But you have to do a clever, clever proxy for IQ testing. But it's just so much more effective to say, look, you know, I don't accept there's any such moral sin as racism. People don't know how to react to that. It just uh, leaves them speechless. On racial grounds. He mentioned a white, heavyset conservative male classmate at Harvard who was considered uncool and argued that the social pecking order was stacked against him more than some athletic black kid who came and got a place on the basketball team. Ramaswamy blamed affirmative action and similar policies for forcing elite institutions to lower their standards, and said that the current narrative of systemic racism creates more racism than would otherwise exist. Affirmative action... Just don't play the game of what creates more or less racism. Just avoid it, say, I don't believe there's any such sin as uh, racism. What we have is a human condition that we prefer our in-group, and that we prefer people who are similar to us to people who are different from us. It's the single biggest form of institutionalized racism in America today, he concluded. Ramaswamy's political awakening began not at home, but in the company of a conservative Christian piano teacher with whom he took private lessons from elementary through high school.
I think his political awakening probably began in public school. Right, when he was pushed down the stairs. Luke, you got into UCLA with the 1200 SAT. Did you write an essay? No, I didn't get into UCLA after high school. I had a very mediocre 1135 SAT back in 1984. Then I went to community college and uh, you know, pulled like a 3.6 GPA. You know, I just essentially started, once I got serious, started pulling straight A's at UCLA, uh, at Sierra Community College. And so that's how I was able to transfer into UCLA from community college. As he worked his way from the easy Bach preludes to Mozart's Rondo alla Turca, the teacher, who became something of a godmother, and extolled the virtues of free speech, patriotism, and Ronald Reagan. A conservatism that puts its faith in unfettered markets would come to inform even Ramaswamy's understanding of caste relations in the Indian state of Kerala, where he spent summer... So I remember getting into UCLA, and I was on Reber Hall, a quiet floor for really serious students, and uh, most of the students there were, were Jewish or Asian, and uh, they all transferred into UCLA. You know, with something like 4.3 GPAs because they've taken so many honors classes. Except you would encounter black and Hispanic students at UCLA who'd get in with like a 3.2. Like there'd be just a dramatic difference in their grade point averages between the, the, the white, Asian and Jewish kids and the black and Latino kids. Now, unfortunately, about eight months before I began at UCLA, you now I got hit by chronic fatigue syndrome so I just struggled through my one year at UCLA I was basically bedridden about 18-20 hours a day with his family Ramaswamy's family is Brahmin the highest caste in the Hindu hierarchy in Woke Inc he maintains that American style capitalism is repairing the damage of that pernicious system writing approvingly that a lower caste guy in India can now deliver Domino's pizza and my family tips him to show their appreciation. Yeah, so you can always find some anecdote to, you know, to make someone look stupid. So this is a New Yorker article. New Yorker, of course, has a left-wing agenda. You know, they're very good at making people on the right look stupid. Where is the comedy on the right? Well, I think it's Greg Gutfeld, Tucker Carlson, Steve Saylor, sometimes Mike Enoch, often Richard Spencer, Nick Fuentes. I think those are some of the funniest voices on the right. At Harvard, where he majored in biology, Ramaswamy joined the South Asian Association, but was more in... Yeah, the comedy is not in the articles, it's in the comments. Right, the comment section, right, that's where you find the, the funniest material. So the left controls mainstream news media and... They, you know, they increasingly censor the comments section, but on Twitter and, you know, on those rare places like Steve Saylor's blog where you can speak freely, there's a lot of funny commentary. ...interested in American politics. Identifying as a libertarian, he became president of the Harvard Political Union. He also performed Eminem covers and original free market-themed rap songs as a kind of alter ego called... So my former UCLA economics professor, Russell Roberts, was a Baal Tshuva, someone who was raised Jewish but then became an Orthodox Jew as an adult. I took two classes from him, and he ended up making a couple of rap music videos 
you can find on YouTube to illustrate major themes in economic theory. Beck. Paul Davis, who lived in a dorm with Ramaswamy and later worked with him at his pharmaceutical company, said he knows his views and style rubbed some people the wrong way, but he didn't care. At the time, Ramaswamy was irritated by what he saw as groupthink all around him. One of his classmates' campaigns, a push to raise wages for janitors on campus, prompted him to lash out in the Harvard Crimson. The article was an early demonstration of his glee at puncturing what he sees as liberal pieties. Those supporting a wage increase, he wrote, had inadvertently linked the fundamental human worth of the workers they were championing to the paychecks they received. True, a bigger paycheck might give the janitors more financial stability, but the higher pay, more than the laws of supply and demand would require, he claimed, would signify that Harvard students felt sorry for the janitors. Well, I worked as a janitor in Australia. I had a cleaning and gardening contract at the Boyne Island Shopping Center for about seven months back in 1984-85. Yeah, so I was 18 years of age. I was making about 35 dollars an hour and I can tell you firsthand janitors you know treated like any other Australian and so the key is restricting immigration right the more homogeneous your society the more likely it is that uh, janitors and garbage collectors you know, will be treated with respect right but when you have a more stratified society from you know, massive amounts of immigration so that people have less in common with each other, then people will start dividing off to live their life you know, with members of their profession, social class, uh, religion, you know, whatever their in-group. But the more corporate, the more unitary, more homogenous your society, the more likely it is that uh, janitors and garbage people will be treated with respect. would harm the janitors in other ways as a condescending strain of sympathy subtly yet naturally replaces the mutual human respect that otherwise would have existed you're only going to respect you know garbage men or people who are below you in social status if you feel some connection to them if you feel like you're part of a community if they're in your in-group if they're part of your nation right the less you have in common with people Right, the more racially, religiously, culturally diverse your nation, the less likely you are to feel bonds with people who perhaps work as janitors or garbage men. The summer after Ramaswamy's sophomore year, he took an internship at a $9 billion hedge fund called Amaranth Advisors. He thought that working in the firm's biotech division, where a team of doctors and scientists evaluated stocks for the firm to invest in, might be more exciting than working in a lab. Woke Inc. records his disillusionment with the experience. He recalls Amaranth's founder, Nicholas Mauni, explaining to the summer interns that the purpose of a hedge fund was to turn a pile of money into an even bigger pile of money. Ramaswamy joined a company-sponsored cruise where he says he came to the attention of the firm's big traders by winning a poker tournament. After that, they began taking him to extravagant restaurants and clubs with bottle service, indulgences subsidized by investor fees. Even at the age of 19, it struck me as, like, this is not the way a company should be, he said. The next year, 
after one of the firm's traders reportedly lost several billion dollars in a week betting on natural gas futures, Amaranth collapsed. Mauni, through legal counsel at his new firm, Verishan Fund Management, said that he recollected neither Ramaswamy nor the events he related. Ramaswamy's next summer internship, another disappointment, was at Goldman Sachs. He describes the inner workings of the firm as a charade, with jaded bankers in hand-tailored dress shirts doing little while making a show of how busy they were. He was especially struck by what was often called service day, when employees engaged in volunteer projects around the city. One day, he recalled, he and some co-workers gathered at a park in Harlem for a tree planting session. A Goldman boss showed up in Gucci boots, told the employees to take photographs to document their presence, and then split. The group reconvened shortly after. Okay, this is from a New Yorker article, the, uh, the CEO of Anti-Work. Let me fast forward to the section. Board included several well-known Democrats, including Tom Daschle, the... Okay, CEO of Anti-Work. Here we go. It's a New Yorker article. ...promising drug to treat prostate cancer that, when used in combination with a second drug... All right, you see this guy on, on Fox News a lot. But it was also trad me diamond. George Floyd was murdered by a plea about his experiences in the Ivy League and the corporate world, and eventually took his proposal to a publisher of conservative authors, Center Street. In May 2020, as he was working on the manuscript, George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis, and cities across the country erupted with protests. So was the death of George Floyd tragic? Right, I think tragic is not really the word. I mean, is the world a worse place with you know, violent criminal and thug and drug abuser, serial criminal? George Floyd is no longer in it. Like, that's a hard case to make. I mean, the video of his death is very hard to watch. But if you're resisting arrest, I don't really feel sorry for you. You get what's coming to you. If police are trying to arrest you and you resist the arrest, then I think you, get, you deserve what's coming to you. And I would say the same thing for January 6th protesters. If they resisted arrest, right, and uh, please beat them down, then uh, I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be up in arms, right? When police are trying to arrest you, you know, don't fight back. That's knuckleheaded. It's stupid. Right? George Floyd played a huge role in his own demise. Right? His death reflects far more on George Floyd than it does on police or on America. Corporate executives began issuing statements expressing sympathy and support for racial justice. A photo circulated of Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, kneeling in apparent solidarity. What is sick is how much... Fortune 500 companies gave to Black Lives Matter in the summer of 2020, like subsidizing Black Lives Matter, this violent terrorist organization that inspired thousands of additional murders, uh, traffic deaths, pedestrian deaths, you know, devastating our country. And much of it was underwritten and funded by our biggest Fortune 500 companies. Swami, unsurprisingly, was annoyed. The murder of George Floyd was tragic, he wrote in Woke Inc. But it was also tragic that thousands of people of all races died of... It wasn't tragic. It was entirely predictable. 
right? When you resist arrest, you're very likely to you know, meet your demise. Right? You should always treat people who are armed with great respect. You should always treat people who can hurt you with, with great respect. You should treat your boss with great respect. You should treat your parents with great respect. You should treat armed police or anyone with, with a gun. Treat them with respect because they have the ability to end your life. Right? George Floyd was on a you know, self-destructive spiral. If this didn't kill him, something else would. Diseases every day that could be better treated by a broken healthcare system. Employees at Royvent 2. Right. The major health problems we have in the United States are not because of our quote-unquote you know, broken healthcare system. Right? The major health problems we have are because some people take really bad care of themselves. Some people, you know, smoke excessively, drink excessively, drug excessively, you know, eat badly, you know, don't do the things that make for a healthy life. And uh, you know, a good healthcare system is not going to undo the damage that people are deliberately doing to themselves. Wanted Ramaswamy to issue a statement of support for Black Lives Matter. Instead. He sent a company-wide email that acknowledged the painful week and the protests and advised his staff to stay safe. This did not go over well. A colleague accused him of being tone deaf, and many of the young people Royvent had recruited demanded to know how the company was addressing systemic racism in it. They should have just, should have just sent uh, members of his staff copies of the bell curve. Right, that would explode all these myths about systemic racism. Subsidiaries. He later wrote, There was something curious to me about corporate America's fixation on the BLM movement, even as other obvious injustices continue to abound. I was personally appalled by China's persecution of its Uyghur population. I don't know about you, but I can't sleep at night because of China's persecution of its uh, Muslim Uyghur minority. But, he went on, None of my employees or directors expressed concern to me about these human rights violations. In the aftermath of the January 6th attack on the Capitol by supporters of President Donald Trump, Ramaswamy co-authored a Wall Street Journal op-ed with Rubenfeld. They called the assault on the Capitol disgraceful, but sounded more exercised that Twitter, Facebook, and other tech companies had suspended Trump's accounts on the ground that he had incited violence. Okay, so when you compare the amount of violence incited by Donald Trump, the amount of violence incited by Black Lives Matter, right? Trumpian-inspired violence would not amount to one one-thousandth the rate of excess deaths caused by Black Lives Matter. So you know, forgive me if I don't take seriously you know, this explanation that you're suspending Donald Trump and company for inciting violence. Right? You promote and subsidize Black Lives Matter which inspires and directly leads to more than a thousand times the violence unleashed by Trump supporters. The op-ed contended that the tech company's decisions about whom to ban were politically motivated. Members of Royvin's Yeah, that's the great thing about these Twitter file releases from Elon Musk. They were politically motivated. His report were following Ramaswamy's new career as a cultural critic, and some were distressed. In Berwick's view, Tucker Carlson and Fox News were toying with American democracy. Moreover, Berwick thought, Ramaswamy's regular public statements about how corporations did not exist to deliver social benefits 
How on earth is uh, Tucker Carlson toying with democracy? All right. If you're so pro-democracy, then you should be outraged by judges you know, overruling the decisions of, of voters on referendums like California's 187 to deny you know, social welfare benefits to illegal aliens. Oh, <laughs> Elliot Blatt is concerned about the persecution of W-I-G-G-E-R-S Wiggers, you know, white rappers trying to sound black. Ran counter to Royvin's original mission to bring reasonably priced medicines to people who needed them. The day after the journal piece appeared online, Berwick resigned from Royvin's advisory board. Dashiell and Sibelius quit too. Ramaswamy was startled by the departures, particularly Berwick's, but he was unrepentant. A week and a half later, he went on Carlson's show to call on President Joe Biden to pressure Twitter to reinstate Trump. To me, he's assuming a status quo that does not exist, Berwick said. Democracy is so under the gun right now, and the very forces that he's talking about, these moneyed forces, are part of the reason. His view is they should get out of the political scene entirely, and my view is they're in it. The money's there. Just a few weeks after January 6th, Ramaswamy announced that he would step down from the business he'd founded to focus full-time on his writing and political interests. Royvent had recovered from its Alzheimer's drug failure, and he told me he realized that he couldn't be a free-speaking citizen without hurting the company. He was also mulling a run for the Senate seat in Ohio held by Rob Portman, who said that he would not seek re-election, in large part because of the polarization in Washington. The Republican Party was perennially in need of candidates of color to diversify its ranks, especially those with stage presence and a good origin story. Ramaswamy was invited to a dinner attended by Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, and took the opportunity to raise the subject of his political future. He recalls McCarthy saying that he could do more good as a thought leader for the party than as a junior member of Congress. Others he consulted suggested that a life in politics would be a source of misery and frustration. Ramaswamy was also casting about for another business to start. Maybe an anti-woke shoe company to compete with Nike, or an anti-woke beverage company to take on Coca-Cola. But conditions seemed more propitious for an anti-BlackRock, something much bigger than the anti-ESG companies that had already formed. At the time... A wave of anti-ESG sentiment was taking hold at the local level. States including Oklahoma, Kentucky, and Texas passed bills that allowed their officials to restrict the activities of financial institutions if they were determined to be limiting their dealings with the fossil fuel or... Okay, hang on a second. Let me find uh, one, uh, one other article I want to share with you here. Good old Apple News Plus. So much goodness. The very serious science of humor. How studying what tickles our funny bone can help explain who we are. You ready to learn who we are? The very serious science of humor. How studying humor can help explain who we are. Written by Ali Volpe for the highlight by Vox. Narrated by Jamie Lamchick. To find mirth in the world is to be human. 
no culture is unfamiliar with humor, according to Joseph Palameni, an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Manitoba. For someone who analyzes humor, Palameni tells me he's still surprised by its complexity, how words and phrases and jokes have different meanings to everyone, but we all have the instinct to laugh. Just as humans have an innate ability to understand language, Palameni says, so too do they have a reflex for comprehending everyday comedy. Sure, there are people who are better. So one thing I notice about people who are funny is that they're always smart. Not all smart people are funny, but uh, I notice all funny people are smart. They're suited at making others laugh, but almost everybody, Palameni tells me, can appreciate a quip. As much as humor is universal, how it works is, to most people, a mystery. We seek out laughs in nearly every form of media. I didn't know there was any such thing as a laughing yoga class. I, I've, I think every yoga class I've ever taken has been kundalini yoga. So that's all I know. 3HO, happy, healthy, holy. From film and TV to memes and TikToks. At the box office, popular comedies rake in big bucks. Funny people are idolized in pop culture. A desire for hilarity influences who we choose to spend time with, too. Why else, when scrolling through profiles on dating apps, would so many say they hope to date someone who's funny, or at least claim to be fluent in sarcasm? According to the 2022 Singles in America survey from online dating service Match, 92% of singles seek a partner who can make them laugh. Does this explain Pete Davidson's appeal? The things that make us laugh today, from knock-knock jokes to satire, don't resemble our ancestors' version of humor. Play is probably one of the original building blocks of humor, Palameni says. Many animals partake in it. Dogs, otters, monkeys, rats, horses, fish, kangaroos. And humans' early predecessors, similar to modern-day chimpanzees and primates, likely engaged in play too, like mock fighting and tickling. Over time, laughter-inducing play transformed into practical uses. Laughter and amusement signified a situation was safe, and positive emotions could be used to help cheer others up. What then, do around uh, 40 to 40 racist jokes say about someone? Well, I think you know, sometimes humor comes from uh, nervousness, a sense of threat. Uh, sometimes it just comes from you know noticing differences that you're not supposed to comment on. Sometimes, I guess, you know, racist humor or humor is a, is a way to, you know, put ourselves down or to put someone else down. And uh, other times, humor, including racist humor, is a way to connect with others. 5,000 years ago, Palameni says, humor evolved to serve more modern applications, to smooth over awkward social situations, to laugh at others' mishaps. Humor would have aided early humans in having difficult or contentious conversations. Topics like, are you helping me enough? Do you like me? Why did you accidentally hit me? Or was it on purpose? Without getting angry at one another, Palameni says. If softening the blow of a potentially sticky... So I notice humor in workplace, in personal situations, it really relaxes the tension between people. It makes people more human in the best sense. Conversation with a chuckle and a smile could help people deal with conflict, then it makes sense that humor and laughter matured for the purposes of social cooperation, as Palameni and others suggest. 
having an audience appreciate your humor has profound social benefits. Successfully landing a joke raises a person's status, while also lowering the status of anyone who's the butt of a joke. Those in on the joke feel a greater sense of camaraderie, too. Still, few people would find data and the... So I find humor kind of breaks through artificial situations and, you know, enables us to be human and to relate to each other like you know, proper human beings. Yeah, Sam Bankman-Fried is funny. Minute dissection of jokes amusing. Yet an entire field of research exists aiming to analyze and quantify humor and how we use it. Scholars are trying to demystify something intangible and crucial to relationships and well-being, even as what we find funny is always evolving and taking new forms. Humor is an omnipresent chameleon, a misunderstood shapeshifter, and to figure out how it works is to take the temperature of society, culture, and our psychology. In the modern world, research strongly suggests that the social functions of humor are considerable. Laughter, itself more likely to occur when we're around others, boosts cooperation and cohesiveness in groups. People who are funnier... Right, the more you have in common, the easier it is to make jokes. Right, in a more diverse society, the more difficult it is to make jokes that everyone will enjoy. ...tend to have higher levels of both cognitive and emotional intelligence and creativity. Genuine laughter, not fake polite chuckles, known as Duchenne laughter, improves mood and tempers negative impacts of stress, and shared laughter promotes social bonding. French scientist Guillaume Duchenne coined his namesake expression in 1862 after performing a series of experiments in which he identified the facial muscles used in genuine smiles and laughter. A true grin or chuckle manifests in the eyes. The bit of squinting and wrinkles that form on our faces when something actually tickles us can't be faked. It's, as Tyra Banks would say, smizing. That's Duchenne. But how does humor actually work? What makes things funny? For centuries, scholars and great thinkers attempted to clarify the conundrum that is humor. Philosophers and humor academics largely subscribed to three schools of thought when explaining why we find amusement in life. The superiority theory, relief theory, and incongruity theory. The superiority theory, explained by the likes of Plato and Aristotle... So... For, for me, humor is not primarily about uh, making me or my group feel superior. Uh, it's, it's much more about noticing incongruity, right? noticing the difference between reality and what's being presented. It's amusing that a woman is struggling to understand humor. <laughs> this is from uh, Vox, The Very Serious Science of Humor. It's one of the oldest. It posits that things are funny when we feel superior to others or to prior lowly... But i got to admit, I do have a you know, very, I think, very typical Aussie problem of just taking the mickey out of people. I just kind of do this as a reflex. It doesn't really work so well in the workplace, you know, with a boss. You know, I've got to watch that out. And, like, just acquaintances that I meet, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, know someone for a few minutes, and I start taking the mickey out of them. And, uh, yeah, very Australian, but uh, doesn't always serve me, uh, particularly when I'm around, you know, very proper, prim people. They don't appreciate it. ...versions of ourselves. Think mocking humor or self-deprecating humor. Sigmund Freud's interpretation, known as the relief theory, is that the act of laughter releases pent-up nervous energy or tension, such as when laughing at taboo or sexual topics. 
The third and most widely accepted explanation of humor is the incongruity theory. Yeah, that's my primary use for humor. Like the difference between, say, the formal situation and what's ostensibly going on and what's really going on. Philosophers James Beattie, Immanuel Kant, Arthur Schopenhauer, Soren Kierkegaard, and others postulated that we find amusement in things that are at odds with our expectations, a contradiction between the setup and the punchline. In contemporary humor, the joke teller sets the scene in the buildup. The part that makes us laugh is often a pivot away from the path we thought we were on. These arguments don't mean we'd find humor in accidentally killing your mother-in-law. Peter McGraw, a professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Colorado Boulder, and his co-author Joel Warner wrote in their 2014 book, The Humor Code, a global search for what makes things funny. Unintended murder would be incongruous, assert superiority, and release pent-up aggressive tensions, but it's hardly a gut buster. Gore, however, does garner a few laughs in the right context. I'm in the audience of a Denver theater. So I don't generally, I don't generally like gore. So I'm not generally one who laughs at gore, but in particularly you know, stylized presentations like at Monty Python, then you know someone's who's had their you know, limbs chopped off and is complaining, oh, it's just a flesh wound. That's funny to me. We're watching improv comedians craft a layered and detailed narrative about vulnerability and love and gaping flesh wounds. Next to me, in the dark, mostly empty house of Rise Comedy, Caleb Warren is laughing. As with some things that are funny, you really did have to be there. Warren, an associate professor of marketing at the University of Arizona, studies what makes us laugh for a living. He, along with his collaborator, Peter McGraw, convened this performance so I can see their work in action. The pair think they've got humor down to a science, and with volunteer improvisers as kind and willing test subjects, Warren and McGraw attempted to take the magic out of comedy. To describe to me, in painstaking detail, why the comedian's jokes, why talk of flesh wounds, might make us laugh. McGraw, who is trained in quantitative psychology, focusing on judgment and decision-making, teaches courses including undergraduate consumer behavior, MBA-level marketing management, and behavioral economics to PhD students. Warren was one of those PhD students during the latter part of the early aughts, one who struggled academically, but was one of the smartest in the room, McGraw says. Warren remembers McGraw teaching a lesson about moral violations, victimless yet offensive actions, such as eating one's dead pet dog, as social psychologist Jonathan Haidt put it. While reading Haidt's paper, Warren mostly thought the scenarios were funny. Around the same time, McGraw was giving a talk on moral violations and an audience member posed a question. If moral violations are supposed to elicit disgust, why are we laughing? McGraw didn't really have an answer. He also couldn't stop thinking about it. McGraw brought the puzzle to Warren, and the pair quickly began exploring why we laugh at things that are morally wrong. The theories of superiority. I remember once reading that uh, Europe only started making jokes about adultery when adultery became less serious. So there's something to that. Right? There are things that you don't want to joke about if you believe in the holy and the sacred. And so, you know, joking about 
adultery probably you know, played a role in making adultery more socially acceptable. E-relief and incongruity did an okay job at explaining humor, they thought. But it would make much more sense if there were one framework, one bow to neatly wrap around the humor experience. McGraw and Warren say they believed another theory by linguist Thomas Veach got closer to solving the puzzle. Take the joke that inspired Veach's line of thinking as McGraw later recounted to me. Why did the monkey fall out of the tree? Because it was dead. Veach <laughs> claimed that humor occurs when someone perceives a situation is a violation of a subjective moral principle while simultaneously realizing that the situation is normal. McGraw and Warner wrote... The violation? The dead monkey. The normal situation? Any dead creature would tumble from a tree, as gravity is wont to do. The major issue with Veach's proposition. The word normal hardly applies to some situations we find funny. Absurd, surreal humor, for example. Tweaking Veach's theory, McGraw and Warren devised their own. They called it the benign violation theory. We were looking to apply another theory at first, Warren says. Reserved and cautious when choosing his words, Warren is not quite an unlikely candidate to be an expert on humor, but he toes the line. We weren't really looking to create our own. Not at all, McGraw says. McGraw is boisterous and chatty, a natural presenter with a boyish verve, fortunate qualities to have considering the sheer volume of interviews and talks he's given on humor. There's plenty of models out there to choose from, he says. We were struggling to find one that was good enough to answer the question of what makes things funny, plus all these other questions that were popping into our head as we went. The pair co-authored a 2010 paper that explained their framework. For people to find things funny, three boxes must be checked. A situation, anything from someone falling down the stairs, a story, someone flubbing their words, is a violation of society's mores, the situation is benign, and both happen simultaneously. One of the studies included in their paper asked participants, University of Colorado students, whether certain statements made them laugh. Before he passed away, Keith's father told his son to cremate his body. Then he told Keith to do whatever he would. So this is from Vox magazine. It's called The, uh, the Very Serious Science of Humor. And the name of the author is... Ali Volpe, that's A-L-L-I-E, and Volpe, V-O-L-P-E. ...with the remains. Keith decided to snort his dead father's ashes. It was one passage respondents found both wrong and funny. The violation in this scenario is clearly the snorting of the ashes. No, it's not read by the author. The benign part is that the snorting was technically okay, since Keith's dad said he could do whatever he wanted with the ashes. Over the years of studying humor, Warren tells me, his sense of humor has progressively skewed darker and become borderline disturbing. In one study, for example, he asked participants to watch drug awareness PSAs because he got a kick out of them. The subjects did not agree. McGraw launched the Humor Research Lab in 2009. The lab itself is hardly funny. It's a bland office space in the University of Colorado Boulder's business school with fluorescent lights and a series of cubicles and Dell desktops and no beakers full of red clown noses or whoopee cushions to speak of. On the day of my visit, the lab was empty, but during times of research and data collection, student volunteers were shepherded into the room to take surveys, watch videos, 
or observe other potentially humorous media on the screens. Prior to the early 2010s, humor research was scattershot and largely based in philosophy or linguistics. Rod Martin, a now retired professor of clinical psychology at the University of Western Ontario, stood alone in applying scientific rigor to the field. Martin literally wrote the book on the psychology of humor, appropriately titled The Psychology of Humor, a copy of which sits on the bookshelf in McGraw's office. Martin declined to be interviewed for this story. From the 1980s until he retired in 2016, Martin studied aspects of humor, like the effects of humor on physical health and stress. In short, humor is good for the mind and the body and helps us cope. In 2003, Martin and a graduate student developed the Humor Styles Questionnaire to account for individual differences in sense of humor. Just as some people use humor to tease or belittle, others may take amusement in the weirdness of the mundane and can often make themselves laugh. To learn a bit more about how I approach humor in my life, how I use humor to amuse myself, relate to other people, tear myself down, I took the Humor Styles Questionnaire. The assessment asks participants to rank how much they agree with statements such as, if I am feeling upset or unhappy, I usually try to think of something funny about the situation to make myself feel better. And I let people laugh at me or make fun at my expense more than I should. The results are a series of scores in four different types of humor, affiliative humor, self-enhancing humor, aggressive humor, and self-defeating humor. Those with high levels of affiliative humor tell jokes to make others laugh. Self-enhancing humor is the skill of staying upbeat and humorous even when stressed. People with an aggressive humor style use comedy to tease and manipulate others. Finally, self-defeating humorists make themselves the butt of the joke. I scored extremely high in self-defeating and affiliative humor, quite high in aggressive humor, and below average in self-enhancing humor. Yeah, I think uh, that's pretty similar to my profile. I shared my results with Gil Greengross, a lecturer in psychology at Previscal Aberystwyth University in Wales, whose dissertation advisor was Martin, the guy who created the Humor Styles Questionnaire. Greengross became enthralled with humor as an academic subject matter when he realized how little is understood about what makes us laugh. If aliens were to touch down on Earth and examine how humans communicate, he tells me, but then every minute or two someone burst out laughing, the aliens might wonder what that expression means and what it signals. So he decided to find out. Over Zoom, when Greengross hears how highly I score in self-defeating humor, a nervous smile creeps across his bespectacled face. Oh, really? Self- I've had a lot of people say to me, why do you put yourself down so much? I mean... I often try to do it to make other people feel at ease and feel comfortable, but I often end up making them feel less comfortable and less at ease. Defeating your highest, he says. That's not very good for your mental health to make fun of yourself. But again, it depends how you use it. Self-deprecating humor can be very useful for people if you use it in moderation. So it all depends on how often. Do you feel that you joke a lot about yourself? I tell him that I do. Because I am often talking to people I don't know for my job, so I find it's a way to ingratiate myself. And I am often talking to, like, way smarter people, like you, and so I'm like, tell it to me like I'm a dumb person, because I am dumb. I mean, you don't have to demean yourself, Greengross tells me, sounding a little like a disappointed father. I don't think that you're less intelligent than me. 
The person I feel most qualified to joke about is myself. Perhaps. Yeah, a good treatment is the pinnacle of physical comedy. Yeah, simultaneously, you know, nothing funnier and nothing more frightening than a man yanking himself. Incorrectly, I believe belittling myself may make people like me more. So, yeah, notice in movies or TV shows, if a man's point, pants fall down, it's funny. But, you know, if a beautiful woman's pants fall down, uh, people don't tend to be laughing. But that's a conversation best reserved for my therapist, not Green Gross. He tells me to use self-deprecating humor as a way to make me appear more romantically attractive to outsiders, which works, his studies have found. Because everyone varies in their approach to comedy, and some people seem preternaturally gifted in the laugh department, what accounts for such differences? What makes one person funnier than another? It's partly hereditary, says Greengross, who is currently studying humor in twins to see... So, humor is powerful to the extent that it reveals reality, that it shows us something new about reality. So humor and art in general, right, that's when they are at their best, when they're revealing something that we were previously not noticing about reality. So the smarter you are, the more acute the observer you are, you know, the better you understand about what's going on, you know, the funnier you can be. How genetics play a role. Basically all psychological traits have some heritable component. He's yeah, even intelligence. Even inclinations towards criminal behavior, inclinations towards pro-social behavior, how hard you work, you know, how careful you are with, say, sex or driving, right? how predisposed you are to education, to forming a strong family bond, to saving money. Yes, but it's also our environment, peers, friends, family. Humor is a thing that is subliminally studied simply by living and adapting to culture. We observe those around us and infer clues about what is appropriate based on what others laugh about, their reactions to jokes. Take movies or comedy specials that haven't aged particularly well. These media speak to a time and a culture that may have found the violations benign enough to laugh about. We probably are learning what we find funny, but we're learning about what is socially acceptable says Sheila Kennison. Yeah, I've been re-watching the TV show Cheers, and it's virtually all white. Uh, its theme song makes fun of transsexuals. Comedy is throwing two distantly disparate things together and finding a similarity. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you re-watch Cheers. It's not very politically correct. Professor of psychology at Oklahoma State University. What are the funny... Uh, watching 30 Rock and they've got, you know, some blackface scene. <laughs> I think they had to pull like four episodes of 30 Rock from syndication. I mean, 30 Rock, there's probably more humor, like jammed in, more jokes, more gags jammed into that show per minute than any other TV show. ...is kinds of jokes. What should you laugh at? What should you not laugh at? And maybe you still find things funny that you shouldn't laugh at but you learn how to appear to be socially following the norms. When these broad social norms aren't adhered to, that's when... The entire Cheers theme song is on YouTube. Yeah, I love that song. I think I, I bought it on iTunes. I love listening to that song. It just makes me happy. Folks fall flat, or worse, offend. Think racist, sexist, and ableist humor. Oh, yeah, However, the cultural perspectives and mores influencing joke appropriateness are never fed. 
next. As time and tastes progress, so do audiences and what they consider acceptable to laugh at. Comedians like Dave Chappelle, who once had broad appeal, are maligned for their regressive material today. According to Kennison, audiences have moved beyond what Chappelle thinks is appropriate. Dave Chappelle is a very cerebral comedian, and I think he purposely wants people to think in ways they're not comfortable thinking, she says. So I think he knew he was probably going to lose people. But for the audience members who stay with him, they may feel more permission to parrot his ideologies. The more people hear racist or sexist jokes, the more comfortable they are with expressing these thoughts in other forums. Well, only if the jokes reflect reality. If the jokes are completely disconnected from reality, then people aren't going to be you know, moved or treasure them, right? Humor has to have a connection to reality to be powerful. Because the internet constantly exposes people to harmful humor, through memes, trolling, anonymous posting, bad actors only have more opportunities. To strike the right balance of a benign enough violation without offending your audience requires some brains. Funny people are indeed smart, Greengross says. Because humorousness is associated with higher levels of emotional and cognitive intelligence, effective comedians understand the right context in which to tell jokes. You wouldn't go to a feminist conference and start telling sexist jokes, right? No. Greengross says. That would be poor emotional intelligence. I don't know. I think that'd be pretty damn funny. A funny person is also a bit of a risk taker, accepting that a quip might rub people the wrong way. Natural comedians tend to be more open to new experiences, too, Greengross says. Some believe that stand-ups are tortured souls who found an outlet for their dark thoughts in comedy, but Greengross and Martin found professional comics were more successful if they had higher levels of affiliative humor, the kind of humor people use to share with and to delight others. There are plenty of comedic questions still left unanswered. One of the most puzzling mysteries, according to McGraw and Warren, is how to make people funnier. That's so difficult, McGraw says. I spent a year on it and then quit. Teaching everyone to be more amusing would be great for the people who are already naturally comedic. They'd be hilarious and increasingly awkward for everyone else since they'd just be offensive instead. The pair attempted to bring the conundrum of improving humor capabilities to Humor Research Lab, but ended up with two papers on entirely different subjects and dropped the idea. Warren is also interested in why some things that the benign violation theory says should amuse people don't, like riding a roller coaster, engaging in kinky sex, or eating spicy food. Thrilling experiences that, for the most part, aren't life-threatening, meaning they're benign violations. Why, for some people, are these adventures titillating or horrifying, but for others, laughter-inducing? Current. I think you'd have to have a certain amount of ease before you can laugh, right? If you're in agony or you're extremely anxious, I don't think you're going to be able to laugh. Warren is studying why people use jokes when they're accused of wrongdoing and why people may find posts describing severe violations funny but won't share that content with others. Much of the research into humor attempts to dive into people's minds, questioning participants about their perception of what is funny or how they conjure witticisms. Okay, this is from Vox, the very serious science of humor. I'm going to continue on with my walkabout and say bye-bye from North Sydney, looking out 
center of your screen right now, the Sydney Opera House.